Good afternoon and a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, a special guest, Yusuf Al-Rimawi, who took part in a recent Zoom presentation, When Prison is a Weapon, the Palestinian Reality. Then two stories from Bougainville, the awarding of a human rights prize to a Bougainville woman who, with others, stood up against Rio Tinto, and a film telling the true story of the complicity of Australia in the exploitation of the resources of that country and of the people. And I'll be speaking with Vicky John. The IRHA definition of anti-Semitism, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees describes it as absurd and abusive. And a recent reply to AUKUS in the form of a Zoom meeting. But first, as per usual, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when decades of cynicism and incredulity of disbelief dissipated. Suddenly, I believe in miracles, unreservedly. What else could explain Lord Rupert of Wapping's overnight conversion, atheistic denialist to religious believer, Lord Rupert the Greenie, leading the campaign day after day to address the very issue he has vociferously denied even exists? Okay, one of the days was a huge spread advocating the virtues of nuclear. Nonsensical, nonsensical, not to include uranium nuclear in the energy mix. Surrendering to a rational activist, dealing with the little problem of nuclear waste by suggesting it could be recycled, recycle the radioactivity for a few thousand years. To add to the miracle, the Business Profits Council now preaches that what it told us yesterday would destroy the economy and life as we know it is now the saviour. And if that's not life-changing enough, big supremo scuttle them more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, is about to announce a form of zero emissions by some time or other, as long as it doesn't upset the hayseed and sheepshit party, whose great advocate for the regions, Bridget McConnell is easy, as we reported last week, used a convoluted argument to declare why we couldn't afford to adopt a zero emissions target, and this week seemed to use the same convoluted argument to tell us how we could afford a zero emissions target, which he could get away with because in neither case did anyone have the slightest idea what she was talking about. And now that my cynicism, I can probably speak for all of us, our cynicism listener, has dissipated into that belief in miracles, then we wouldn't dream of asking Lord Rupert or the Prophet's Council or Scummo or Bridget or any of the converts whether a sudden realism that the do-nothing option could be even more costly than the end of the world economy they were predicting just a week ago has anything to do with it. That hard as it is to believe, they now see more profit in the energy sources needed to prevent the planet from frying to death than in continuing to fry it to death while denying it is frying to death. Or in Lord Rupert's case, big advertisers seeing that. Or in Scummo's case, seeing himself become an international outlier, a pariah, requiring a real miracle, appease international criticism and appease the hayseed and sheepshit party simultaneously.
On that, a commentator through the week said Scummo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle were tossing round ideas, leaving us to play guess the odd one out. Scummo, Barnacle, ideas. Tough one. If we were cynical, which we're not, but let's just for the sake of argument suggest we might be, that cynicism may have been fuelled by the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank annual general meeting Wednesday, where it rejected a move by the environmental activist group Market Forces over accusations it was not cutting lending to fossils fast enough with chairperson Catherine Livingstone Greedies claiming the virtue of many de fossils who are committed to transition to a cleaner economy. I suspect King O'Malley would be turning in his grave. The bank, Catherine said, will not resile from Paris commitments, but nor will we capitulate to the demands of climate agitators. Our philosophy overall is to support the transition, but to make it very science-based and data-based. And not profit-based, Catherine. Science-based profit and data-based profit. Climate science, climate data. More profit science, profit data. Right, but uh, fossils committed to transition, uh, wouldn't they indicate their commitment more not by mining and exporting more fossils, but by not mining and exporting any fossils? Not if you believe in the inalienable laws of profit science and profit data. Just think, if we still owned the witch bank which used to be, it would cease supporting fossils immediately now that Scummo has seen the light. Well, except in the regions and... Oh, of course, that's where the fossils are. So, no, no, maybe it'd make no difference. So let's leave it to Catherine and the shareholders to save the planet, to not resile from our Paris commitments its way. The new converts all tell us the planet will be saved by market forces, the very market forces which created the threat in the first place. So it is with great confidence that we accept their, their prognostications and place our faith in them and their markets. Not that all fossils need a loan from the Witch Bank and the other banks balancing their books between our Paris commitments and a little profiteering. Take our second most filthy rich of the filthiest rich, Twitty for us the profits, with his gas plants. Accepting a 30 million handout from Fossils Minister Angus Tailings. What a kind gesture, because the second filthiest rich in the country needs every bit of public largesse he can get. Like the 30 million topped up with another several million from the new New South Wales Supremo, Dominic Perilous Tay. With Twitty announcing his Port Kembla plant would enjoy the wonders of green hydrogen, and Angus boasting it would show us the wonders of his gas-led recovery. Presumably a gas-led recovery from, from gas. It was wrong to call it gas, Twitty complained, looking at 30 million gift tours in the mouth. So what will it produce at export, Twitty? Gas. Then Angus is correct. No, he has no right to call gas gas. It's gas while we transform to beautiful, spectacularly profitable green hydrogen. Back to the witch bank which used to be, poor Catherine not only had to contend with bloody climate activists, but with the unfair work ombudsman charging it with underpaying staff at least 16 mil, 
This Artwood admitted two years ago it had underpaid 41,000 staff 53 mil. The Ombudsman suggesting there was a problem with signing workers up to individual agreements, the bank called individual flexibility arrangements, and we know caring employers need flexibility, arrangements which got rid of crippling work practices like rostered days off, overtime pay, annual leave loading, guaranteed pay rises and maximum hours. For goodness sake, there's some uncommitted workers who might even want to go home at night, or for a bit extra, which the bank must have miscalculated as it cost the workers all those millions. Inadvertent, of course although the bank would only pay top-up money if employees twigged and complained they were being paid sub-award rates. The bank, the Ombudsman said, privately knew 10 years ago workers were not better off overall but continued to make them obviously worse off overall. So poor Catherine had a lot on her plate this week. How did this happen, Catherine? Absolutely inadvertent. The award details are just so complicated. But, but, but you abolish the award because it is so complicated and we inadvertently miscalculated. But, but again, but you knew that at least 10 years ago and we inadvertently forgot to correct it. We are busy people after all. Penalty is up to six sixty grand per breach, but hopefully Catford and the board can negotiate their way out of that with some sort of flexibility agreement to match the inflexibility in workers and conditions. Another fine example of the virtues seeing we're on that theme today of privatization and the mutual benefits of workers' rights not to join a union. Those virtues also evident in the airline industry, speaking of contributions to frying the planet, with the airline uh, which used to be our airline privatised by a socialist government because they claimed the public purse couldn't afford to own it. And thankfully the public purse has only handed out so far $5 billion to the industry in the past year. And a caring business class government also privatised the major airports, providing an oh-so-lucrative monopoly, with the privatised airline, which used to be complaining about the airports, increasing their charges exorbitantly. But, but they're a monopoly, that's what they do. And everyone knows everything's so cheap at the airport. And the government regulator got very tough and pleaded with the airports not to increase their charges exorbitantly. Please? Please, again showing the virtues of privatisation. And we know the airlines themselves would never take advantage of certain high demand times to increase their charges exorbitantly. So let's hope the public largesse keeps flying in their direction. Very confusing though, because the socialists privatised the airline which used to be to bring it the super efficiency of the private sector, which the bloated hand of the public sector couldn't match. Yet, when a rival airline was seeking the right to compete with the airline which used to be on the lucrative Pacific route, its supremo Alan Joystick said the other airline had an unfair advantage because it was state-owned. It's all so confusing. Here we've fought the coronavirus by locking down as soon as even one case or maybe two or three turn up. Daily press briefings keeping us informed of how close we are to getting back to zero and therefore able to get on with our lives. 
thank goodness we're now so much more sophisticated but as we record the highest daily number of cases in Trublawazi and lots of deaths we are assured this is exciting news we can open up as planned adding there is no doubt the numbers will then reach new records and the health system will be overwhelmed a big win a great win for the profit motive not quite so great for the record numbers of ill and dying Finally, one of the thinkers behind privatising the airline, which former world's greatest worst treasurer and big supremo Paul talked about, cozying up to former Indonesian other people's business butcher Sahato in order to contain evil China, saying his interest in Indonesia in was sparked by reading about Sahato's coup and the slaughter of millions of mostly leftists. How Sahado had knocked over the Indonesian Communist Party, Paul said. Unfortunately, in cozying up, Paul obviously didn't think it remotely worthwhile to raise the matter of slaughtering the left with his newfound diplomatic friend. With friends like. Good afternoon. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is back for 2021. This year's digital festival invites you to take a journey with a series of thought-provoking films, documentaries and shorts. Effort 21 invites you to explore the world and connect with environmental issues beyond the headlines. Take a journey into the deepest seas, up awe-inspiring mountains and into the lives of those fighting to save our planet. Running from October 14 to November 14, visit effa.org.au for more. The Environmental Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. With Palestinian ingenuity and a rusty spoon, Six Palestinian prisoners escaped Israel's much-heralded security apparatus. The escapees became instant heroes to all Palestinians, and in response, Israel launched a massive manhunt to mask their fallibility. A forum, When Prison is a Weapon, the Palestinian Reality, exploring what it means to be a Palestinian prisoner of the State of Israel, the loss of liberty, the abuse and torture, the impact on families, children and communities, and what it tells us about the nature of occupation. Three speakers gave an insight into reality of life in those prisons and the continuing occupation and oppression of Palestinians. They were Nadia Dhaka, 
Palestinian human rights lawyer with Makud in Jerusalem, Palestine, Bassem Tamimi, Palestinian activist and prisoner of conscience from Ramallah in Palestine, and Yusuf Al-Rimawi, Palestinian lecturer, writer, activist and broadcaster here in Melbourne. Today I'm speaking with Yusuf about his work here in Australia, partially to support Palestinians in refugee camps in various Middle Eastern countries and also in Palestine under Israeli occupation and other activities here in Melbourne. But we began with Yusuf arriving in Australia and I asked him where home was for him before he came to Australia. I came to Australia from Saudi Arabia and I was 28. Before that I had finished my school education in Saudi Arabia and university education in Jordan. Came back to Saudi Arabia where I worked as an engineer for five years before I decided to pursue further education in Australia and then it became my new home. That was the attraction, was it? Education? Yes, education. Masters of Business Administration. Did you have trouble settling in after living in the Middle East for so long? Of course. Now that I look back at this journey, I understand that there has been challenges on many levels. First, physical level, because I am a person with disability, and before coming to Australia, I had never been completely uh, away from all my family members and all my friends. While I did separate from my parents at the age of 16, but I was surrounded by relatives for my education journey in Jordan, but for the, for the very first time in Australia, I was completely on my own. So that's on the first level. On another level, we're talking about an English-speaking country. So there is a language challenges. I don't want to, I don't want to say barrier because my English was um, good when I uh, immigrated here. I couldn't have come here without going through what they call the IEL, uh, IELTS test. That's part of the requirement of the university and the visa. But to me, English was what I, um, what I watch from television, uh, which is American or British. For the first time, I came head to head with the, with the Aussie accent, and that was a bit of a journey. It was okay, but I, I would still call it a challenge. The, the other thing is that the cultural, uh, the cultural changes. Where I am from, whether being Palestinian or growing up in Saudi Arabia or in Jordan, we belong to what is called high-context culture. So to immigrate from high-context cultures to low-context culture without even realizing that, thinking that it's just going to be the language, also that was a bit of a challenge. But one of the biggest uh, shocks that I had seen upon my immigration to Australia, particularly in the first uh, two or three months, is the bias of mainstream media against Palestine and in favor of Israel. I have never been uh, in a country where the media is so the peak of the Second Intifada. That is one bad thing that led to something good because it 
drove me to thinking of starting my own program and hence Palestine Remembered. How did you find 3CR? Well, 3CR was a bit of a random chat with a housemate and the person was from Argentina, married to a Colombian, but he was interested in the causes of Latin America, particularly Chile. And he told me that there was programs in Spanish in support of, uh, when he was uh, younger, he, he told me about a program in the 80s in a, in a station in Melbourne that promoted the struggle of civil society during the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile after 1974 military coup. And he then uh, mentioned 3CR for the first time, but it wasn't to encourage me to, um, to try my luck and approach them and see if we can start a segment there. But it was in the context of there has been a little bit of pockets of news uh, apart from a news outlet apart from the mainstream uh, news outlets. And then it, the, the name stuck in my mind. And I remember the first time I looked at CCR and then I um, gave them a call. I said, I am Yusuf. I am from Palestine. I am interested in an Arabic-speaking program. My first impression was, I just want to join any Arabic-speaking program. I wasn't even hoping to start a segment for Palestine. And they told me, well, we do have a segment run by a Moroccan. It's on music and Ibrahim uh, Minhima, if you have come across uh, this lovely person of 3CR. Oh, and then uh, they said that is probably the, the only Arabic-speaking program we had. But if you like, you can come and then you can talk to us about starting a new segment if you have passion for something in Arabic. And then I said, oh, new segment. Let's think about it. And that's the beginning. So it was a gradual evolution of thoughts from knowing nothing to wanting to join any Arabic-speaking program to thinking of starting my own Arabic-speaking program. And by the time I had finished, the idea of starting something in English was born after the support I received from the manager of CCR uh, back then. Why did you choose the name Palestine Remembered? The first name was not Palestine Remembered. The first name was From the River to the Sea. That's right. Now, and now that I think about it, I said, well, I could have kept that name, but the name didn't have the word Palestine. So I wanted Palestine to be in the name. The word Pal From the River to the Sea might be symbolic to those who do know Palestine and they know that we're talking about the, the river is the Jordan River and the sea is the Mediterranean and from the river to the sea is Palestine. Why did I choose from the river to the sea first? I said, well, this, that's where my people are, even though that the political entity now, we can go through one state, two state solution, what, what's the name, but regardless of whether or not there is Israel or there is no Israel, all of the Palestinians around the world, all of the 14 million people around the world now, are from the river to the sea, originally. And then uh, thinking of having the word Palestine in it, I felt that the word Palestine has been deliberately 
pushed away from the discussion towards being forgotten so that maybe in this half an hour a week let's remember Palestine and let's talk Palestine and you did luckily I did thanks to the support of uh, people like you Jan and also um, the journey I believe I believed in the journey I believe I had so much faith in the journey itself and I was prepared to whatever outcome especially in the first year or two because most of the feedback I received in the first year or two was supported but the 10% or 5% feedback that was not supported was so hateful so despiteful so even scary to me uh, so intimidating uh, that uh, it was predetermined pre-programmed to make you indirectly think of not continuing but I had made my mind that nothing will stop me as long as I'm doing things according to the regulations of Australia and also 3CR. I managed to go through this intimidation, particularly in the first two years, and then probably by the third year and fourth year, the pro-Israeli who had been sending me bad things uh, had given up, and then things have become more stable. Were you made aware of the fact that the Zionist lobby or certain parts of the Zionist lobby had been targeting 3CR right from the word go? Because we did have a Palestinian program years ago and then Bill Hartley was one who, in the early years, openly supported Palestine. I had learned that the hard way because what happened, Jan, is in the first year I received a letter from the immigration telling me that there is a condition on my student visa. The condition was that you cannot renew your current student visa from Australia. If you want to renew it, you have to go back to where you came from and apply offshore. And that condition was called no further stay. So I didn't know the boundaries of that. I thought, well, what is no further stay? What is apply from offshore? So I didn't really worry about it until the expiry date of my visa approached. And then I knew that it is really serious and I'm going to have to leave the country according to this condition. But I didn't make the connection between this negative development in my visa and my program with 3CR. But then, thanks to support that I received from 3CR and also the help from a lawyer from the legal aid, uh, and I want to mention her name, uh, Peggy Cerdo, who voluntarily helped me. And she said, well, you told me you do a program on Palestine in English. Let's investigate this. So what she did is that she started or, or requested the FOI of my Freedom of Information, And then from there, we knew that there was a little bit of connection between the radio program and the uh, cancellation of my, not cancellation, imposing this condition on my student visa. And then in that journey, I was told that 3CR in the 80s, they were subjected to a series of intimidations and also accusations uh, in in legal 
uh, or in, in the court of anti-Semitism, and they nearly lost their license over things in the 80s. And then, I, I, I then things started to make sense to me that we are pressing the buttons. There are people in Victoria, in Australia, who really want to intimidate any discussion, any debate, any uh, news outlet on Palestine, especially in English. They wanted the English discussion on Palestine to remain exclusive pro-Israeli or just uh, on, on, uh, or, or something very superficial. The program, Palestine Remembered, was the first to have dedicated, to be totally dedicated in uh, uh, English about uh, Palestine. Uh, we, we do have the support of people like you who dedicate significant time of their pro own programs Palestine. But um, I learned the hard way that uh, yes, 3CR has been targeted by the Zionist lobby, uh, and now it is a continuation to that. You're listening to an interview with Yusuf El Rimawi. Yusuf is a Palestinian lecturer in Arabic language and culture, a writer, translator, musician, radio presenter, and refugee activist. Once here in Australia, when did you make the decision that you would dedicate a certain part of your life to helping Palestinians, maybe in refugee camps, Palestinians in other countries who are facing danger, Palestinians in the occupied territories? When did that hmm. come? The refugee project was born from 3CR. I received a letter from one of our listeners asking me about Brazil providing resettlement to ex-Iraq Palestinians who are stranded in Jordan, Syria, Jordan-Iraq, and then uh, Iraq-Syria borders, and the plight of the Palestinian Iraqis. So I said, well, that is a, a good idea for an upcoming program. So I did my research, and then I started shedding lights on the cause of the small minority uh, of Palestinians in Iraq that were targeted by sectarian militias upon the invasion of Iraq in 2003, first because they were viewed or perceived to be pro-Saddam, then because they, they were caught in the Sunni-Shia sectarian war, then because of their Palestinian uh, identity, and then there was rising uh, anti-Palestinianism in Iraq was on the rise for different reasons. So this small, unarmed, uh, unorganized group of Palestinians of Iraq became the target of this violence, and that led to the uprooting of this small community that is not more than 30,000. If you compare it to the Palestinians in Lebanon, half a million. Uh, Palestinians of Syria also, similar to this figure. Palestinians of Jordan, more than 2 million. So this is the the smallest, one of the smallest communities of Palestine, Palestinians around the world. So the uprooting of this community and the fact that some of them got stuck on the borders between uh, Arab countries drive me to think maybe we should start another, an, an, another campaign to hopefully resettle some of them in Australia because Australia is a richer country to Brazil and Australia is signatory to the Geneva Convention of Refugees and nevertheless it provided no resettlement 
back then to these Palestinian Iraqis. And that was the beginning of the the Aspire project where we provided language and legal support to some of the Palestinians who uh, fled the conflict. And with the help of so many wonderful people, we were able to bring to Australia more than 40 families in about four or five years. And what happened to the remainder of the 30,000? The lucky ones were resettled in countries like Australia, but I still I am in touch with some of them who are still in limbo because what happens, uh, Jan, is when the refugee leaves the country, you enter what is called the transitional period. And that transitional period is that you cannot return to where you fled the war from and you are not yet resettled in a third country and you are in a country that is a temporary situation for that provided temporary solutions for you and these transitional countries are normally non-signatories of the geneva convention of refugees which means that they do not have a program of resettling uh, refugees so unfortunately um we're talking about a, a, a community that is dispersed uprooted they lost their property they lost what they owned in Iraq, they, uh, most of the vast majority of them were born after 48. So the only thing they know was Iraq, and they became uh, stateless. But unlike the mainstream Iraqis, the international community didn't know how to deal with the simple question, what happens to the refugee, to, to refugees when they become refugees again? And that is something we had learned the hard way from the treatment of Palestinians from Iraq and the subsequent treatment of the Palestinian in Syria and the Palestinians of Syria is even there are more layers and more levels of injustice against them. So it is a very sad and tragic situation if you are a refugee and you happen to, let's say, being uh, from Palestinian origin in Syria or Iraq, and then you become a refugee again. Unfortunately, the Arab countries failed us. The international community failed us. The UNHCR and, and, and UN bodies also failed us. And sadly, even the Palestinian media, pro-Palestinian media also failed, failed them in not providing enough coverage on their plight. And that's why Palestine, remembered could be, in several spots of its journey, the only outlet that talks about that, uh, what happens to the Palestinian Iraqis and then the Palestinian Syrians. Tell me about the center of Arab culture, Avaraz. Mm. Who is Avaraz? Avaraz is Ibn Rushd in Arabic. That's how the Latin called him. And Ibn Rushd lived in what is today Spain around 900 years ago. And the reason I named my initiative after this philosopher, he was an Arab and Muslim philosopher in Andalusia who was a judge, uh, also a leader. Uh, but, but, but in addition to this, the legacy of Averroes has two sides. First, within the Muslim world, it is the legacy of, uh, of, of integrating philosophy within Islamic teachings, because up until Averroes, the general understanding among Muslim scholars 
is that it is un-Islamic philosophy and Islam do not go hand in hand. So then came Averroes and wrote a book explaining why you can be a believer in Allah according to the teachings of Islam and be a philosopher. So within Islam, within the Muslim world, Averroes, Ibn Rushd, was the voice of reason. But also Averroes in the West played an important connection between East Europe and West Europe in what was later known the European, the European Renaissance because he re-explained the work of Aristotle. West Europe had to read Arabic explanation of Averroes of Aristotle. So there was this kind of amazing connection between the Greek philosophy and the European Renaissance through the lenses of an Arab. When I thought of a center to promote knowledge about the Arab world, I I thought, what could be a better legacy, a better person to have connected not just the Arab world or the Muslim world with the other civilizations of the world, but also European East and West themselves. And that's why I thought of Ibn Rushd to be the name of my initiative. So the center was born in 2013 after I had finished my journey with uh, Melbourne University as a lecturer in Arabic language and culture. And I was able to identify the gaps when it comes to Arab culture in Australia, or particularly in Victoria. And just like Palestine remembered was an attempt to fill in the gaps and the blanks uh, of the representation of the Palestinian issue, and Aspire also was to fill in the blanks of treatment of Palestinians of free conflict zones, Avros was not, from the beginning, trying to compete with any already existing multicultural project from an Arabic perspective, but to do things that were not done before. And that is lectures, forums uh, about the Arab world in English. So I wanted Averroes to be a resource or a reference point in English language for people in Australia who have interest in the Arab world but don't know where to go to basically talk about, for example, what's happening in the Arab world. So that was the beginning in 2013. And since I started, now I look back and we were able to organize tens of public events, whether public forums or lectures or debates, uh, also screenings of films, music, and we also started language-centered initiatives. I, I just want to mention one of them. It is called Melbourne Arabic Language Watch. And that is the watchdog of Arabic language, uh, meaning that the idea of the language watch is to try and raise the standards of application of Arabic language in public spheres. So that is something a bit too technical, but this initiative, Al Marsad or uh, Melbourne Language Watch, became international because our Facebook page that, rely, uh, that depends on putting language errors in the media uh, or in translations and then uh, putting the errors online and uh, and then correcting them. Uh, so it is like learning by trial and error. Now we have more than 5,000 followers on our Facebook page. 
So I mean, that's that is a little bit of idea about Averro's project. But the 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 last addition was the music band, which is a group of Arabs and Australians who love Arabic music. And now we are nine musicians, and we play classical uh, Arabic music or what we call Tarab music. Well, the third area of your activism is for Palestinian prisoners and you were part of a forum a couple of weeks ago when prison is a weapon, the Palestinian reality. You were the third speaker. Can you talk a little about what your feelings were when you heard the two other speakers, Nadia and Bassam, talking? I I said to the organizers that the fact that you are putting me in the same panel, on the same panel with Nadia Dukka, who had a profile in advocating in courts for the Palestinian prisoners, and also Bassam Tamimi and the people of Nabi Saleh became a spearhead for resistance and paid the price from their freedom, from their blood, the simple fact of sharing really honoring and was something that I knew that I will be learning so much even before I start hearing their uh, listening to their presentations. I learned a lot like the audience and I said in my presentation that I am I wasn't there to sound like an expert on the prisoners in the presence of these two these three people. But what I wanted to do is to utilize my skills in translation to give you access to authentic emotions from the mothers, the sisters, the wives, the brothers, and the relatives of prisoners. One thing I noticed that social media, Facebook in, in my case, has given us a small window to what they say, what they share with us on daily or routine or repetitive basis. So I organized screenshots of posts, particularly from a family in El Aitawiya neighborhood in Al Quds, Jerusalem, a mother and a sister of Palestinian prisoners from the Democratic Front of the Liberation of Palestine, DFLP. I just translated what they had what said over years. I feel that I, again, want to fill in the blanks in the discussion about Palestinian prisoners in Australia among solidarity activists, because I didn't feel that we have this level of depth of understanding what the families of prisoners, what it actually means for the, for the families to have a son or daughter in uh, prison because of the simple language barrier, because we speak in English and the prisoners are Arabic speaking. So I was happy to have seen the feedback and that is something that I might continue doing and continue to convey the emotions and messages of the families of prisoners. Also, I remember in December, in November 2010, I received an invitation from the organizers of an international conference on the Palestinian detainees and prisoners that Algeria back then organized and hosted. And they said, this is an international conference on the Palestinian prisoners. And we have delegations from all around the world, except Australia. 
we want you to come to Algeria and return with knowledge and tools to help and to help promote the cause of Palestinian prisoners. So that is something I really value. I learned so much uh, from people with expertise in promoting the cause of Palestinian prisoners. That was 10 years ago. I feel that this is also, while I advocate for the cause of the Palestinian prisoners, this is something that we have to continue learning because it changes every day and we have to understand that not only the figures change, but also the ways of brutality that Israel imposes on the prisoners themselves, on their families and on their communities. So we have to be, to continue to be up to date. Just speak for a moment before we finish, Yosef, about the rusty spoon and the six Palestinian prisoners, for people who haven't heard that story. Mm. On the 6th of September, we woke up to the news of six Palestinians flee an Israeli prison in Jalbur. Within the first few hours, we had no information of whether or not that was correct and how they managed to escape or to self-liberate themselves. But let me tell you that ever since there was rumors about it, and then it became luckily something uh, correct, it's soon after that it became the center of all Palestinians and most pro-Palestinians around the world. Everything we shared, everything we said, the telephones we have between us, the random conversations with family members were, were about them. Did you see six Palestinians fled or escaped the Israeli prison? It was the center of our lives for, for days. And then the day one passed by without, without news. And then the second day when, when Israel admitted this, uh, uh, that, and then we knew that they were able to, uh, to dig this tunnel of freedom with nothing but their own hands and a spoon. It is a sense of heroism that we don't get to see in real life. And I say to my friends, to our children, our grandchildren, they will say that our grandfathers lived in the time of the six Palestinian prisoners. Exactly how, exactly like how we now remember the three Palestinian prisoners who were executed by Britain in the Akka prison in 1930. And there are songs about them. There are poetry about them. We know them by name, Muhammad Jamjoum, Fuad Afjazi, Abazir. So in 2020, we commemorate the heroism of these three Palestinian prisoners 90 years ago. And 90 years from now, the Palestinians will commemorate the heroism of these six Palestinian prisoners. Unfortunately, all of them were recaptured, but like one of my relatives said when she knew that I will be talking in Australia in a forum about the prisoners, she said, please tell the Australians that all of us are proud of them. We are proud of our boys, and they have made us even more proud. So I conveyed the message of Fadwa, my relative, who is an ex-Syria Palestinian currently living in Sweden, who herself is a daughter of a martyr who was killed in 1970 for Palestine. So 
this small event, and when I say small, I say it's just one of a long, of a series of events that the Palestinians go through, became a center and became really uh, huge and became a uniting, uniting element in a time of polarization and division. So we hope that we will be able, when we talk about them, to do that in a way to continue the message of their struggle, which is the message of liberation, freedom, and independence for Palestinians. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you so much, Jan. I'm grateful to have been on your program. You were one of the people who invited me to speak, I remember, in 2004 and 2005. So I'm, I cannot thank you enough. And we all thank Yusuf al-Rimawi for all the work that he does for the Palestinian people throughout the world. Kofiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kofiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers 
and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Vicky John is a long-time activist for a free Bougainville and is very buoyant about two events in recent weeks. One is a Human Rights Award to a Bougainville Member of Parliament and the second is a documentary film, Ophir. Begin, Vicky, with the remarkable woman, Theonilla Rocker Matbol. She's won a Human Rights Award, the Gwen Skinner Human Rights Award for taking on mining giant Rio Tinto. First, tell us about her long struggle and what the award will mean. Was elected as a Bougainville Member of Parliament last year. Is currently the Minister of Education. Does her activism go back a long way? It does. She's worked tirelessly for the people of Bougainville and recently, actually September last year, a court document was filed through the Australian Human Rights Law Centre with regard to a complaint against Rio Tinto and the disgusting environmental damage done by Rio Tinto at the Panguna Mine. She's joined by 156 other Bougainville residents and the outcome of that so far has been that Rio Tinto will fund the investment. It's on a roll now. Yes, so when she was awarded that award, she said, we've been living with the disastrous impacts of the Panguna mine for many years and the situation is getting worse. Our communities live surrounded by the vast mounds of waste left over from the Panguna mine, which continue to poison our rivers and it's also you know, polluting the river, it's making the kids or the children sick and when it floods, it's, it just takes over the land where the gardens you know, were growing for people's food. But we still don't know a timeline for when this inquiry is going to happen. No, not at this stage. All I know is that the Rio Tinto will fund a proper investigation of those urgent problems, but I haven't heard anything since. Okay. Well, the second issue we're going to talk about is a documentary, and it's called Offer. What does that word mean? Ophir is, I think I'm saying it right, it could be Ophir. But anyway, let's say Ophir, O-P-H-I-R. Ophir is the name sometimes used for mainland Bougainville. And recently a documentary called Ophir has been filmed in Australia and overseas. I think Melbourne and Sydney in Australia so far. But the film... The screenings will be held in over 40 countries by the end of the year. So it's, yeah, 80 film festivals and it's winning awards all around around the world. It's doing very, very well. Who are the filmmakers? The filmmakers are Olivia Paulette and um, Alexandra Berman and Professor Christian Laslett. How have they approached this documentary? According to ACMI in Melbourne, they are describing this film, Ophir, it sort of describes the attempts of an Australian-owned mining company, Rio Tinto, to take over the residents of Bougainville 
to legislate away their rights to life and things that sustain that life. The beauty, poetry, philosophy of the Bougainville residents contrasts with the dirt of the mining company and businesses who exploit every possible loophole in their quest to destroy the land of Bougainville. So it's that's, you know, ACMI in Melbourne. That was their, like, synopsis on the film. But uh, I think going back to your question was why the film was made, Olivia had been, Olivia Paulette had been to Bougainville and to Papua New Guinea and had actually made a film in Papua New Guinea called Canning Paradise, which was all about the fisheries and everything, like tuna, et cetera, going into a can. So I haven't actually seen that film, but he was very aware about Bougainville when he was in Papua New Guinea. So long story short, Olivier was in Australia and had attended the ANU in Canberra and was asked to show his film, Canning Paradise. So he did that and then... Yes, he said that um, that was in 2013 when he was in, in Canberra and he attended a seminar at the ANU organised by the State Society Governance in Melanesia program in the school, or sorry, in the College of Asia and Pacific at the ANU. The seminar that he attended was on Bougainville and mining. So he knew a lot about Bougainville because he'd been there. But he said he was shocked at the content of the seminar at the ANU. Um, He basically said that the discussion seemed to assume that Bougainville would find independence through the return of mining and the return of Bougainville Copper Limited and Rio Tinto to Bougainville. Olivia also said that what he was hearing in Canberra was the opposite, the absolute opposite of what he was hearing from the communities on Bougainville who still live with the lasting legacy of the Panguna mine. And he was um, also surprised that there was little mention in that session at the ANU of the many dead or the lasting trauma that came from the Bougainville conflict. Hence, Olivia felt the need to to take this further and made the, the, the current documentary called Au Fur. You've seen the documentary... Vicky? Yes. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I learned a lot from the film. Um, there are ethical questions about how Bougainville has been, how there's been lack of coverage by the Australian media, you know, about Bougainville and the Pacific region as well. I was shocked that the research that the filmmakers had discovered was that. Douglas Oliver, who is an anthropologist, was actually employed by the mining company back in the 60s. Douglas Oliver was like the godfather of the Pacific in his writings. And so through the film, it actually shows you the document and some of the, they, they kind of read out parts of the document whilst you're watching the film. And it's, I, I was shocked. I was really stunned. But it's one of those things that, he, like, he's, he's got to be held, or, held to account because he's using his anthropology as a weapon of war. I mean, it's totally unethical. So I did read in the um, exploration of the documentary um, that was in the Pacific Journalism Review, written by Wendy Bacon and Nicole Gooch, and 
according to that document, Olivia Paulette, who's the filmmaker, will be attending a conference in London for anthropology. And he's been asked to show that film. So it's stirring up a lot of, you know, angst in many directions. You know, how can people, particularly academics or Douglas Oliver himself, you know, be paid by a mining company and kind of tricking the people of Bougainville at the same time? It's just horrendous. And the film hears the voices of the people of Bougainville as well. Yes, it does. It supports the grassroots storytelling. And, it, you know, that doesn't seem to penetrate through mainstream media. It's something that's got to be heard, the, the voices of the, you know, of the, um, the grassroots people. It's very, very important. So a lot of the films about Bogan that I've seen over time, like this film is quite unique in the sense that that's all you're hearing about the... the I mean, it does go back in history about the mining company, but majority of the film is the people of Bougainville and it's really having an effect worldwide and particularly the First Nations people who have seen the documentary. A strong influence of women in the documentary? Yes. So women are the landowners in Bougainville and there is one particular section in the film where Dr Ruth Sabona travels to communities explaining the new mining act that's currently in Bougainville and has been passed by the Bougainville government. It's not a good mining act and people weren't consulted. They, they haven't realised how dangerous the, mining, the new mining laws are. So Ruth is explaining to the people, you know, in, in language and in English to let them know that the laws aren't for the people and if you try and oppose mining on your land in Bougainville now, you'll incur very hefty fines and uh, jail terms. So that's, that was only one example. But the, the legislation, the mining legislation, you know, which is causing angst amongst the local people of Bougainville, weren't previously informed about its you know, potential impact on them. And it was drafted with the assistance of an Australian academic who's a lawyer and who was a, the, a former legal advisor to the Bougainville Autonomous Government. The ANU academic is Dr Anthony Regan. I've known of him for a long time and, and many, many years ago I also attended an ANU seminar about Bougainville and I saw the connection way back then you know, how close he was to the um, mining company. And so, again, the film just has just opened my eyes even more with them revealing all this information about, you know, how much he was paid, how close he is to the mining company, and that he did draft the mining legislation laws that are currently um, existing on Bougainville. When the mining legislation got passed by the Bougainville government, it was hailed as, you know, the first of its kind in the mining industry by the media, you know, promoting it big time. But when you read through it, and I mean, it's, you know, hundreds of pages, it's going to have a terrible effect on, on the people of Bougainville. Terrible. Was this documentary completed before the new government was elected? Yes, it was. So the referendum was held in Bougainville 
in November, December 1999. Then Olivia and um, the other filmmaker went back to London, I think. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was before the referendum. And I don't think they were there for the re- referendum. And I don't think they were there when the current president, um, Ishmael Torama, got voted in. Did the documentary come to any conclusions? The conclusions, I think, were basically how corrupt it can actually be, you know, or how how governments and mining companies work very closely together and how they're out to trick the people. That's what I felt from it. Like, I felt it was, it was, so, it was really well done, and as other people have said, you know, having the poetry come through, it gave more um, more of a like more sense to the documentary in a way that it was painting a picture, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it was very moving. It was very emotional. It, it, I do hope, you know, it comes back to Australia and, and, and the people of Australia can watch this film and realise how our taxes, Australian tax dollars, were paying for the war on Bougainville that killed 20,000 of, of the people on Bougainville. It's you know, one of those things, I've, I've been an activist for Bougainville for a very long time, 28 years now, and I still feel at times that hardly anybody knows about Bougainville. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people have worked very hard to, you know, get the story of Bougainville out. But, yeah, so hopefully, again, this film, which is where it's all Bougainville voices, will will do the trick. We're still... Hoping, you know, we're still waiting for Bougainville to get its just independence. Papua New Guinea uh, have to ratify the, you know, the the vote, and, and and there's all these delay tactics happening now. Yeah, it's just one of those things. I think the film is very well timed, and uh, hopefully, people will get behind the Bougainville story. I'm just wondering, Vicky, has there been any that you know of any? Reactions by Douglas Oliver, by Reagan, by Rio Tinto, and, and in fact by the new government. I think that's probably a question for the filmmaker. But I I did read that Tony Reagan, the academic from the ANU, um, he doesn't like Christian Leslette, who's, who's also an academic, um, who's also play is a producer of the film over. And people like um, Anthony Lowenstein, who's another independent um, investigative journalist. And he, uh, Reagan also says he doesn't like Jubilee Australia, who did all the, the work on, uh, you know, the research about how bad the um, new mining laws were. So, no, he's obviously against what people are saying, definitely. All right, Vicky, well, all in all, a wonderful documentary, which we hope we're all going to see. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, um, hopefully we'll be back in Australia again soon. Thank you, and thank you for all your work. Thank you, Jan. Nice talking to you again. And I was speaking with Vicky John, who, as she said in that interview, she's been working 28 years for a free Bougainville and... The wait continues.
Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Anti-Semitism is racist, bigoted and should never be tolerated. Yet in arguing for the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, Australian politicians' rationale has been thoughtless, often absurd and usually abusive of the rights of Palestinians. Those are the words of Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, writing in Pearls and Irritations. So I ask him first, what is the IHRA. Who initiated it and why? It's called the International Holocaust Remembrance Association and it met in about um, five years ago in Budapest with certain alarm apparently about a rising anti-Semitism in Europe and under the leadership of this guy called Kenneth Stern and others, they conceived this definition and document then the, the influential lobby, we'll call it the Zionist lobby, I mean, has it's really publicised it, marketed it, advocated it across America, across, across Europe, to say this is the gold standard and every government and institution and university should adopt it. That's the brief history of the IHRA definition. But um, people like... Uh, Jeffrey Robertson, the, the Australian barrister, uh, Neve, the impressive Israeli human rights lawyer, and even Mark Robin Margot, the former head of the Jewish Board of Deputies, have said, look, this is a dreadful, confusing document. The last point I would make about the IHRA definition um, is that um, it's not about anti-Semitism. It's actually about protecting Israel from criticism. That's its main objective. So how does it do that? By um, insisting that everybody should obey what's in it and and stick to it. Uh, And that's why the education minister in the Morrison government is rushing around. He's suddenly 
suddenly heard about it and swallowed it and adopted it. It's clearly influenced by the, uh, the Zionist Federation of Australia. The fact that it's a document concerned to stifle the politics of liberation, to stifle criticism of Israel, that's why there is uh, great interest in having it adopted. How does it do that? First of all, there's the actual content of the document that more or less it says, for example, one of the things it says, one of the examples it gives is that you can't criticize Israel unless you also simultaneously criticize any other country or several other countries that also have prejudicial racist type policies. So that's a nonsense. So that's one way that the protection of Israel occurs. I mean, the second is this powerful lobby, uh, which has been throwing its weight around and intimidating people and using the using anti-Semitism as a weapon, knows how to corner politicians of every kind in these, these private meetings that none of us know about. And then people like Alan Tudge and Penny Wong and Anthony Albanese come away and tell the rest of the world that they agree with the definition. That's not government. That's uh, manipulation. Well, you mentioned the, the key architect, Kenneth Stern. He believes it's been taken out of context. What does he say about that? Yes, well, he, he not only says that, but he says he didn't expect it to be, to be a code for hate speech. He says it was never meant to be the gold standard. I think he envisaged that, so that it would be a, you know, a statement for discussion. Not to be, and, and because it's regarded as confusing, ineffective, prejudicially biased protection of Israel, I mean, he, he's written in The Guardian saying these things, saying that it's, it's a bit of a nonsense to adopt it. And yet, People who clearly have not thought about it very much have not considered the alternatives, such as the Jerusalem Declaration of uh, on anti-Semitism, and for that uh, for that point, the Sydney Statement on anti-Palestinianism. If only they'd read these documents, they might those leaders who've been uh, browbeaten into saying they'd adopt the IHRA definition should think, well, I might think again. Well, what do these last two definitions say? Well, the Jerusalem Declaration was written by 200 scholars, uh, 200 Jewish scholars. I think it was about a year ago. I'm not, I can't recall exactly the date. But the essence of that statement, it says that, look, our statement is about any kind of racial uh, religious-based prejudice. We're against bigotry and intolerance of, of any kind, anywhere. We're not preoccupied with Israel. Israel is not the only victim in the world. We have to cease this nonsense of behaving as though Israel's the only victim and therefore it can act with impunity. If you sum up the main points of the Jerusalem Declaration, that's what they're saying. Now, of course, the other statement that's come out about two weeks ago, which is very impressive, and, and it, it's almost 50 years late, but it's now with us, the, the, the uh, Sydney Statement on Anti-Palestinianism, which basically says, look, the same 
prejudice and discrimination and, in fact, murderous violence towards Palestinians has been going on for years. But nobody's allowed to say anything about that. And we should now equate, if, if you're going to be serious about anti-Semitism, you must be very, very serious about uh, anti-Palestinianism. No, it's a long word, but that's... And who put that together? Well, about six of us. It's actually published by the Arab Federation of, of New South Wales but in, a, in association with a couple of other people like Bob Carr, the former professor of Arabic studies, Ahmed Shabul, and, and myself. <laughs> but it's a very, I mean, it's now been translated into eight different languages, and, it, and it's, in, it's in hard copy form. It's only, you know, I've, said, I've tried to say to politicians who so far have not even shown the courtesy of responding to the Arab Federation and saying thank you, we have received this document. And it only takes five minutes to read. So, uh, and as I say, it's on the desk of every state politician and every federal politician across this country. Did you send a copy off to Colin Rubenstein? It's a good question. I don't, I haven't seen the distributor. Somehow I would imagine not, but it'd be very surprising. Well, they must have got it because there have been some responses. There have been any responses to that, but there have been responses to John Lyons, to the criticism made by John Lyons in his recent book. A couple of rabbis have been wheeled out to criticise what he said. OK, I'll bring John Lyons in in a moment, but first, Robin Margot, where does he fit in? Well, Robin Margot wrote a very powerful article in Pearls and Irritations about 10 days ago. He was a, a, a young leader in South Africa against apartheid. Subsequently in Australia, became the uh, president of the Jewish Board of Deputies so, uh, and, and a senior legal lawyer, barrister. So the fact that he's saying about the, the behavior of the Zionist lobby, enough is enough. You can't go on fermenting discrimination against and hatred towards the people of Palestine. Enough is enough. You have to stop. It's about time you stop this. And it's about time you were held accountable for your behavior. So, for example, one of the powerful things he refers to is what he calls whataboutism. In other words, that's the point that is made in the IHRA document, that you're not supposed to criticize Israel unless you produce a list of every other country that... Um, doesn't adhere, doesn't respect human rights. He says that is whataboutism, it's, and that it's irrelevant and morally indefensible. Well, you said Education Minister Tudge has called on the Australian government and universities to adopt the IHRA definition. Has there been any response from the universities? I don't think so, no. I mean, I know for sure that the, the ABC, um, the management of the ABC have said they will not adopt the IHRA definition because they're being asked to do so. Look, as soon as we finish this interview, Jan, I will send a copy of my recent article to the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University with a covering letter. I've no idea. Well, I can't imagine that the universities would adopt it. I would have thought there'd be a huge 
grand swell of protest if they did. I mean, Touch uses the words that he wants. He says he wants that definition, that let us protect Israel at all costs definition. He wants it to, quote, cascade down to institutions such as universities, unquote. So, in other words, it's got this, this absurd way that he thinks has to cascade down, in his language, to um, people in universities. Are you aware what other countries have adopted the IHRA? Well, I know that it's been adopted by many, by many American states, by many universities in, across America, because they're, they're browbeaten and intimidated there. They're, not, they're really not allowed to think freely. And they are allowed to foment prejudice towards students who, and those staff who support Palestine. It's been similarly adopted by different institutions in, in France, I think a couple of um, English universities. I, I'm not sure which ones have openly rejected it. But the, the, the same problem occurs elsewhere as here. If people don't read, if they don't think, if they don't evaluate, if they're just browbeaten into submission by the Zionist lobby, which, which has been practicing in this way for, I don't know, since, um, since the Balfour Declaration of 1917. That, uh, there's plenty of evidence about that. Then they'll, they'll just turn up as conformists and say, we must have the IHRA definition. That's not government. That's, you know, conformity with being uh, manipulated. Talk about John Lyon's book, Dateline Jerusalem. Journalism's toughest assignment. Yeah. What's his point of view? He is a very experienced journalist, a very experienced editor. On all those years, I think he spent five or six years as the Middle East correspondent for the Australian, and and he was certainly at some point for the Herald. And his point is that he never experienced the intimidation, the threat. Uh, the power of the Israeli Zionist lobby. I mean, he'd never seen anything like it until he started to promote or to write and uh, publicize stories about the treatment of Palestinians. And I guess one of his main points is not just about the criticism, but uh, of, um, of anybody who, who appeared to support the human rights of Palestinians, but that powerful journalists and editors and so on, self-censored. In order to avoid the criticism from the Zionist lobby, they either refused to write about Palestine or only wrote about it in a way that was um, uh, not critical of the policies of Israel. In fact, many of his examples are about journalists being vilified and hounded out of their jobs. And similarly, you get this wretched bully from Melbourne, Mr. Colin Rubinstein, even traveling to the editorial offices of the Australian in Sydney in order to browbeat the editor and staff into uh, never, never publishing an article that was um, even slightly critical of the policies of Israel. I mean, that has to stop, he's saying, uh, Lyons is saying, this has to stop. The attacks have to stop, the self-censorship has to stop, 
we need to hear the Palestinian story. He also makes the point that the Israeli press is far more critical of their government than the Australian government's going to be. Yeah, that's a very, very, very good point. That if you read a, a newspaper like Haaretz, you get far, far more criticism of it in, in, uh, in Israel, far more criticism of the Israeli government and policies than anybody dares to, to write in the mainstream media in, in Australia. I mean, the, to the enormous credit of John Menadieu, uh, the, the journal Pearls and Irritations, which is really the most brave, distinguished, significant journal in, in media in Australia at the moment regarding the Palestinian issue, I mean, regarding a lot of other issues as well, as far as, I, as, far as I'm concerned. But uh, John Menadieu should be, you know, thanked for his sense of courage and principle in, in publishing a series of truths. be interesting to find out what sort of pressure has been put on him to stop. I've got a feeling that once a, a brave, distinguished person stands up and people know his print the bullies know what his principles are they they circled the wagon they won't go for it i mean i found myself the once once um you know for the past 10 years i've said i'm sorry i'm not you you go home with your cruelty to your posh houses they don't put any pressure on me one of the points i've made in the in the recent article is that none of us should be frightened to speak up for human rights and none of us should be frightened to say that the boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign of the Palestinians in, in, towards Israel is, is anti-Semitic. It is not. And that boycott and other boycotts are not anti-Semitic. So I, I know, I'm under no pressure to, um, <laughs> since I've you know, realised that you, you just have to tell bullies where to go. Thank you, Stuart. All right, Jan, thanks for your interest. I hope, uh, I hope that um, squashes the COVID virus, generates a lot of interest. Let me just talk to you. Bye-bye. Professor Emeritus Stuart Reeson, do get on to pearls and irritations. Lots of people writing to that journal. Ninth Koori Art Show is calling for entries. This is your chance to showcase your work. All works entered will be exhibited at the Koori Heritage Trust. To enter, you must be a Victorian-based Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artist aged 17 years and older. There is a total prize pool of $32,000. Go online to kooriheritagetrust.com.au to register. Entries close on the 1st of November. Koori Heritage Trust is a 3CR supporter. Hello, this is Dan Salton and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. 
Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Since Morrison announced the AUKUS deal and people recovered from the surprise, two meetings have been held to allow people to share their concerns and to begin a fight back to ensure that what they are proposing doesn't eventuate. French Such Zoom was hosted by Jacob Greck, and what follows are slightly edited presentations by a number of the activists. It begins with Guy Rundle, a writer at large for Crikey, associate editor of Arena magazine, and author of numerous books and TV productions. I'm going to give an overview, which is by no means from deep expertise, it's just from following it for the past few weeks. So AUKUS is the Australia-Britain-United States Agreement uh, on a whole bunch of things. It's announced on the 15th of September, and it commits the three countries to joint activity on high-tech warfare and defence using naval warfare, quantum technologies, cyber military, robotics, and autonomous weapons. Those were the things mentioned in the press release which is all we really have of AUKUS at the moment. The most publicised part of this has been the alleged building of eight nuclear submarines for Australia, sharing US nuclear technology and necessitating full nuclear facilities in Australian ports. Delivery of these subs, if they happen at all, is decades away. So the AUKUS deal is a major shift in global alliances, but it's as much about a shift in the rhetoric of power as the reality of power, I, I would argue. Previous and current alliances in a post-colonial world have sought some sort of regional justification, whether it's legitimate or not, and as being based around the Pacific or the new current parallel quad arrangements of Australia, the US, India and Japan as a sort of mega region. AUKUS is an unashamed return to notions of global control by three nations allied on the basis of a shared cultural and historical background and the presumption that that creates a stronger union and that that union is somehow legitimate across the whole base of the world. The prompt for such an alliance has come from the United States and represents the second part of a pivot to Asia strategy, which was inaugurated by Barack Obama. The pivot to Asia is overwhelmingly about the notion that China will be the US's great global competitor rival and adversary in the decades to come that will determine the shape of the world really the tpp trade deal was the first and failed attempt to create this pivot to asia tpp always being about geopolitical concerns rather than trade itself the rapid withdrawal from afghanistan that we just saw was the prelude to the second stage which was why nobody really cared that it was such a shambles AUKUS is now the lead leading element of this new pivot to Asia. So the US and its allies and its train of sycophants in the media claim that that AUKUS and other things are a response to a, a new and aggressive expansionist policy by China. China, in turn, claims that it is simply returning to a full presence in the world after decades in which it was turned inwards and which it had deliberately minimised its, its global sort of footprint. But it also claims that its specific moves uh, are in in the South China Sea and elsewhere are in response to U.S. attempts to encircle it 
to engage its regional rivals in an alliance against it and to delegitimate its own claims within the region. So at the moment, much of this turns on the question of the uh, South China Sea, which uh, China made a substantial claim on in the 1930s before communist takeover in 1949. Uh, and so we have a situation where both China and Taiwan draw on that 1930s claim to argue for a large section of the South China Sea, which is in contravention of the law of the sea uh, as it currently stands. The crucial part of the, the rhetoric in states like Australia and the UK that gains public support for the idea that this is something more than a regional dispute between China and its neighbours, it seems to me, is the implicit exceptionalist claims of the US uh, that all other nations must restrain themselves and stick to their regional spheres, while the US claims the world as its global and regional sphere at the same time and its legitimate uh, extension of operation. Uh, and that obviously draws not simply on its accumulated military power, it also draws on the ideology of its exceptionalism as a representation of the true picture of what the human future is, the, the last best hope of humanity, as it were. So this puts us in a situation where China is accused of expansion for breaking the law of the sea. The US refuses to sign the law of the sea. So the legitimation is, is based overwhelmingly on whiteness, global whiteness. The US and, the, and Australia and the UK uh, are unified by that. And it's that is an extraordinary sort of move in our era that they would so unashamedly put that back together and, and abandon any pretense, pretense of colonial things. What it does chiefly in, in our terms is it draws us into a US command structure in which there's no place for Australia to have both a dual dialogue with China and other nations about it, its defence, even while it's in a defence alliance with the US, but it also creates a command structure in which we have no initiative to exit uh, should there come to uh, a situation of tension. And that's what we've really got to focus on, it seems to me, in a campaign against it. I think there's large support for the US alliance in Australia, but as the Iraq war and, and the Vietnam war showed, there's much less support for its adventures and the actual ramifications of that. So AUKUS is soft and we can target it that way. And that was Guy Rundle. The next speaker was Professor Clinton Fernandez, former intelligence officer, Professor of International and Political Studies at University of New South Wales and author of many books. A version of what I'm about to say is already on the website of arena.org.au. I'll begin with the politics of the SPECT, known as AUKUS. Uh, the Prime Minister announced it as a forever partnership. He used that phrase 10 times in the one press conference. Uh, the announcement has had an effect <clears throat> at the political level. An opinion poll soon after found that 57% of the public approve of the pact. 90% of Liberal National Party voters approve, but Labour voters are split. 53% disapprove, 47% approve, which means that the government now has the national security wedge against the opposition. And the looming election will not just be about the response to the pandemic or the bushfires, but about which side can be trusted on national security. Public support for the PAC shouldn't come as any surprise because opinion polls have, strong, have long shown strong support for the alliance with the United States. 
Uh, and these opinion polls cannot be dismissed as aberrations. If there is to be a credible anti-war uh, movement, it has to be based on what the public regards as reasonable. To that end, I want to say that submarines, conventional submarines, constitute a rare and vital capability for a maritime nation like Australia. They raise the costs for any adversary contemplating hostile action. Anti-submarine warfare, at which Australia is also adept, requires costly cutting-edge capabilities uh, and is one of the most complex warfare disciplines to master. Submarines are expensive, but the cost to an adversary uh, of countering them is much more expensive. Submarines give Australia a strategic weight that no other defence force asset or combination of assets has. If we are to call for an independent Australian foreign policy, and a military that is armed but neutral, that focuses on defense, not offense, then that military and those calls must presume possession of capabilities such as submarine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. The capabilities cannot be turned on quickly. They require years of investment in personnel and equipment. And so for that reason, even if down the road it is possible to adopt a policy of armed independence, submarines and anti-submarine warfare assets will be a critical part of it. But I want to distinguish conventional submarines, which are relevant for the defense of Australia, from nuclear-powered submarines, which are not. Nuclear-powered submarines give you a range and a submersion and a, and, and a speed, which allows them to operate far from home, uh, in particular for our, in our context in the waters of the South China Sea. Uh, some of the submarines that are being discussed, the Virginia-class submarine, for example, have at least 35 Tomahawk missile firing points in the, uh, in the, in the, in the midsection. Uh, they allow you to overwhelm uh, an enemy's land defenses. So these submarines, uh, if we're getting Virginia class, are not submarines to collect intelligence. They are not to hunt other submarines or to destroy enemy shipping. They are there to attack another country's coastal defenses. They are offensive. What exactly is the purpose of all this, however? And here I want to uh, draw your attention to a TV show, a comedy called Utopia. In this show, there is a satirical point about defense policy saying, well, we are defending our trade from China, but China is a major trading partner. And so how can we be protecting our trade with China from China? The whole thing is absurd. Well, that clip has been widely circulated and perhaps uh, you know, even funny, but it's utterly misinformed. Australian strategic planners already know that it's absurd to protect trade with China from China. That's not what they're trying to do. In the real world, what they are trying to do is insist that military and intelligence activities can be conducted in another country's exclusive economic zone. Exclusive economic zones were established in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea in 1982. The United States is the only maritime power not to ratify uh, the Law of the Sea Convention, but it does act in accordance with it anyway. Exclusive economic zones refer to waters that extend 200 nautical miles from a country's shore. The United States says that it has the right to conduct military and intelligence collection activities within any country's exclusive economic zone and can do so as close as, as 12 nautical miles from the coast. It also accepts the right of other countries to do this inside its own exclusive economic zone. During the Cold War, the United States did not interfere with Soviet ships, bombers or surveillance aircraft that came in close to its airspace. China says that it respects freedom of navigation, but it doesn't respect the right of foreign governments to conduct military and intelligence collection activities. So this is the key question. Does a country have the right to conduct military activities in another country's exclusive economic zone? In fact, if you look at Indonesia, the Philippines and India, consider their geographies, their shape and where they are in relation to the ocean, they all agree with China's version, uh, China's concept of the EZ. Very recently in April this year, India protested strongly 
when the United States conducted its own freedom of navigation operations inside India's exclusive economic zone. Article 301 of the Law of the Sea Convention is called Peaceful Use of the Sea, and it states that uh, the threat or use of force cannot be used inconsistent with the principles of international law in the United Nations Charter. The United States knows that if China's concept of exclusive economic zone rights, namely no foreign uh, military activities in its zone, if that concept were to be widely accepted around the world, the United States would not just lose the ability to project force in China, near China. It would lose the ability to project force in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea. And that would uh, uh, mean that we'd have to conduct operations from 200 miles offshore. That reduces the power and the reach of US intimidatory force. That is why the tensions in the South China Sea over the exclusive economic zone are going on. It has nothing to do with freedom of navigation. It is about whether military activities can be conducted near another country's shore. This is surely a situation that calls for international diplomacy rather than threats of force, uh, the deployment of of armadas uh, and so on into another country's zone. This question is important and must be asked not only inside parliament, but on the streets. What is the purpose Uh, of these freedom of navigation operations. Are we doing it in order to protect shipping? And the answer to that is no. Or are we doing it to protect the United States' ability to project force anywhere around the world? 30% of the world's oceans are actually exclusive economic zones of other countries. That is what is at stake here. There are other other aspects about the deal. The, The policy planners in Australia know that it is a dangerous situation. That is not their concern. They already know that this is, a, uh, this is going to be dangerous. Their biggest concern is that some other country in the region might be more relevant and more effective uh, and more reliable for the United States, and the United States would protect, would choose it over Australia. Speaking truth to power, to tell the people in power that this is what you're doing is dangerous, is useless. They already know this. Policy planners do not need a lesson in that. What they have to be forced to answer, however, is are we, in fact, protecting the United States' ability to project power globally? rather than shipping on the defence of Australia. Professor Clinton Fernandez, next to Dimity Hawkins, activist, researcher and PhD candidate, a co-founder of ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons and much more. First, I wanted to acknowledge that I'm speaking tonight from Nam on the lands of the Wandry people and pay my respects to the elders of this place, both past and present. And just note again that Since the time of the first invasion in 1788, this nation has been beholden to militarism by foreign powers. And tonight's topic is just further evidence of a new wave. As Guy and Clinton have already pointed out, of course, the nuclear powered attack subs are just one of the few parts of the recently announced AUKUS agreement that we have any details on. And even then, those details are fleeting and opaque at best. There's been lots of talk in the last couple of weeks about Trojan horses, a foot in the door, the thin edge of the wedge. And I agree that nuke subs could be any or all of these. The larger issues here, and I think this is in line with what Clinton was just saying, are the ways in which this aggressive announcement of nuclear submarines play into the hands and agendas of nuclear armed nations. Richard Tanter has reminded us that there are three groupings of nuclear armed states relating to nuclear states now. There's the nuclear possessing states, of which there are nine. There are nuclear supporting or umbrella states, such as Australia, NATO, uh, Japan and South Korea, which make up about 30 states. And now there are the nuclear ban states, which means those 56 who have now ratified or 86 who have signed so far to the nuclear ban. 
The proposal to nuclearize Australian military submarines leads Australia down a path that ties us much further into a forever partnership with nuclear possessor states who will run our military, including with nuclear powered subs using highly enriched uranium. So is this interoperability or intractability? President Biden is carrying on the legacy of nuclear possession. Current estimates say his finger hovers over the button of an arsenal of around 1,800 deployed nuclear weapons today. Many of them are on high trigger alert, ready to be launched within minutes. And the UK are no princes of peace in this either. The UK have currently deployed a further 120 nuclear weapons. Between them, including those not currently deployed, these two countries alone possess around 5,745 nuclear weapons. Despite this, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the TPNW, came into force in January of this year. The current Australian government does not support this treaty. With a sustained adherence to the concept of Australian security being tied to US nuclear weapons capabilities through extended nuclear deterrence, along with our hosting of certain US facilities, the Australian government has been in a de facto nuclear alliance in ways for decades. But through strong advocacy, resistance and sheer determination, the push for a nuclear capable military and associated nuclear industries has been held back for decades too. We have seen nuclear plans fall in the face of broad community opposition time and again. We will be seeing Australian nuclear resistance again now, front and centre, working against this new version of nuclear colonialism. On the day that the nuclear subs were announced, Prime Minister Morrison was quick to claim Australia is not seeking to establish nuclear weapons or establish a civil nuclear capability. But he was just as quick to shy away from signing the TPNW. The treaty completely prohibits nuclear weapons, including having them stationed, deployed from or installed on territory of states parties. The treaty also bans nations from assisting, encouraging or inducing anyone to engage in any activities that support the possession or use or threat of use of nuclear weapons. In our region, we have many states who have joined the TPNW. Those include 10 of the Pacific Island Forum states. Nine ASEAN states are either parties to the treaty or have signed so far. There are many looking again at how the AUKUS nuke subs will contravene or impact on a range of international laws, such as Clinton pointed out with the um, law of the sea. But there's also those that have signed up to the TPNW, the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty, and also, of course, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. For many here in the Pacific, though, it is hard to avoid the obvious that these are the same players, the US, UK and France, that conducted hundreds of nuclear tests across our region last century. They are now claiming to protect our peace and our security. This region is, has identified over and again that our greatest security threat is climate change. Further nuclear risk to the Blue Pacific, whether through nuclear accidents, targeting, waste or war fighting, are unwanted and unnecessary. We do not need to nuclearize Australia's military submarines. We do not need to encourage, enable, or bind our security to nuclear weapons. We do not have to continue the nuclear colonialism that we have seen and felt for so much of the last century. We can and should be de-escalating nuclear war fighting plans, seeking nuclear justice for past harms, and saving humanity from future nuclear threats. We can and should be joining the nuclear ban treaty. We can and we will continue to work for a nuclear-free Australia within a nuclear-free Pacific. Timothy Hawkins.
finally in this segment of the Zoom meeting, responding to AUKUS, Dave Sweeney, long-time anti-nuclear campaigner working for Australian Conservation Foundation, writer, activist, journalist, and sometimes appearing on 3CR. I'm also talking to you tonight, folks, from Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, unceded land in Melbourne. Very pleased to be with you tonight. Shortly after AUKUS was announced, the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Michael Noonan, circulated a video comment to the ADF, particularly to the RAN. And in it, he spoke and he said that the AUKUS will shape the direction of our Navy forevermore and will no doubt change the shape of our nation. The concern from an environmental and ecological perspective is that the, the change in that shape of our nation is one that we don't want and is one that is unhelpful. And as you've mentioned, Jacob, our concern is that AUKUS is a stepping stone uh, to a domestic nuclear industry. We're concerned about the Trojan horse dimensions of the AUKUS plan and what better vessel to introduce an idea under the radar than a submarine. There are three key areas of concern that I want to touch on tonight. Um, and that's apart from the myriad of other areas of concern that other speakers will discuss about security aspects, sovereignty, international reputation and others. But I want to talk about pressures for an increase in domestic nuclear power, an increased pressure and expectation that Australia hosts radioactive waste, and the environmental impacts of nuclear submarines on our oceans, our ports, our coastal waters, our ports and port communities and public health. Now, for many of you, it's no surprise to see the domestic nuclear power argument come around. It's like a, a fast returning comet. It comes around, it shines bright, it disappears, and then it comes back. Like some of you will recall a dozen years ago, John Howard and Ziggy Swakowski talking about the need for 20 reactors by 2050. In the middle of last decade, there was a Royal Commission in South Australia into expanding the nuclear industry. Since 2018, there has been a press by conservative political forces. Keith Pitt in Canberra, Mark Latham in New South Wales and the Liberal Democrats in Victoria that's seen parliamentary inquiries into repealing state and federal prohibitions on nuclear technology in Australia. So there's nothing new here and these have on economic grounds, social licence grounds and many other ways been batted out of court each time it's come up. But there is an extra level of reanimation and swagger about pro-nuclear advocates since the AUKUS announcement. We've seen Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce and other federal politicians out. We've seen the Mineral Council of Australia talking up small modular reactors. It doesn't matter that they don't exist in the real world. Apparently, they're the saviour and the MCA is spending a lot of money and time brooking that. We've seen polls in the Australian saying that support grows for nuclear power, even though the number of respondents that responded for a position of for or against the majority were against. So if you put that body of momentum together with the forthcoming climate conference of parties, which starts in Glasgow on November the 1st, you can see that AUKUS is fueling a push for domestic civil nuclear power and nuclear industry. So we're concerned, environment groups and others, that a pathway to nuclear-powered subs could become a river of public cash for nuclear subsidies. We're also concerned about what this means for radioactive waste. Currently, the federal government is looking to locate Australia's first 
dedicated national radioactive waste facility near a town called Kimba, west of Wyala in regional South Australia. Now, it's a highly politicised and deeply flawed plan. It's proposed by many in the, in the local community, especially grain growers, grain producers in the Air Peninsula and the Bungalow traditional owners. And the Bungalow Aboriginal people were explicitly excluded from a community ballot that was meant to measure community sentiment about this waste proposal. The Bungalow were also had the indignity of explicitly attempted to have any right for procedural review or legal challenge to the site removed from the enabling legislation by Minister Keith Pitt, the minister who today wants to open public cash to coal industry. So the Kimber proposal is contested. The issue is set to grow over the coming months. And I'd ask you, this is a gathering of really informed, influential, significant people, connected people who make a difference in this country. I'd ask you to keep your eyes and ears open for this one because assistance will be needed as this goes on. But many of us are concerned that this AUKUS push could see the Kimber proposal more from a suboptimal waste management plan to a submarine waste facility. Now, it's important in order to keep going to always find something positive in a situation. One positive is that people are talking about this, not rolling over, talking about this and talking about the wider nuclear industry. Another positive, and it's an important one, is that AUKUS shows that sovereign risk cannot ever be used credibly again by any Australian politician who wants to justify ecologically destructive behaviour. Australia has just torn up a $90 billion contract at the highest level of security. We hear environmentalists time and time again, are oh, not possible, sovereign risk, sends the wrong signals, compensation claims, well, that's out the window. And that's one positive of this very not positive thing. The third area of concern I want to flag tonight is to capture or just touch on some of the many unknowns of AUKUS without getting too rumsfeld about it all. But there are many things that we do not know. Along with waste management and nuclear stewardship, as it's called, we don't know the extent of the impacts around planning, emergency and incident response capacity, public and environmental health impacts that this plan poses to our seas, our waters and our people. Nuclear subs sink, nuclear subs have accidents, they catch fire, nine have sunk and not in combat. And nuclear subs have limited containment and safety mechanisms compared to terrestrial ones. And we're well aware that terrestrial ones have proven risky and unreliable. And nautical ones are far less in their capacity. Look, tonight I'm very conscious we're pressed for time. So I'll hold it to those three points of Trojan horse for a domestic nuclear industry, increased pressure to host radioactive waste, and a plethora of increasing and unnecessary and very real, not quantified, risks that this poses to our people and in our environment. I look forward to in the breakout room. The breakout room I'm in is stopping a Trojan horse becoming, um, or nuclear subs becoming nuclear subsidies. I'm keen to discuss what we can do to stop a very disturbing and dangerous expansion in that breakout session for any who care to join. And I just want to close by thanking everyone here tonight for attendance and attention, and also the organisers of this, RAF, for the initiative and the opportunity to present. It's a profound escalation. People are very true when they say it might take a lot of time, but it might take a lot of time to roll out the absolute work. But a journey starts with a direction. 
And if we choose to go down road orcas, it's not the road that this country needs to go, wants to go, or the world needs, or that we as citizens, not clients or customers, citizens of this nation want to be part of. And that was Dave Sweeney. And on the program next week, I'll continue with uh, the rest of the speakers at that AUKUS meeting held in Melbourne recently. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.